Hopefully we can con- con- continue those conversations after the service. Um, keep your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we'll be referencing it a bit as we go through. Um, but as we, as we start, uh, let, us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you and we, we acknowledge our need for you, Lord. We can't uh, do this all on our own, Lord. We need your truth, Lord. Please speak to us today, Lord. Uh, Lord, be with me in my words that anything false from me would fall away, Lord, and that only your truth would prevail. Lord, we pray for all of us that we would have open ears, open ears to hear what you have to say today. Uh, May this all bring glory to you alone. Amen. All right. So imagine that you get your dream car. Let's stop and think about what car that might be. Maybe it's an old Italian convertible sports car or an American muscle with a big 426 Hemi V8 or whatever car you like. For me, it'd be a, a classic Mini Cooper in British racing green. You treasure this car. You desire to look after the car. And so you seek out and obtain the manual, how to operate the car as designed by the manufacturer. Not just the new ones, the thin, uh, the thin ones you get in a modern car, but like the proper manuals, which tell you everything that you need to know about the car and how to operate it. From the practical everyday, what buttons do what, to the regular maintenance, how to change the oil and keep the tyre pressures, troubleshooting when things go wrong, and the advanced, how to adjust the valve clearance and cam belts, etc. It has a log and a history of the car, so you know what work has been done on it. You read the manual regularly, and you've studied it and memorised it. You don't understand all of it, but you won't tell anyone else. There are plenty of things that you can do to look after the car, and from the outside, it looks great. The paint is clean and shiny. The interior is spotless. The car is immaculate. This car would win awards. But there is a problem. No one would even notice it from the outside, but this car has a serious problem. The engine is seized, broken and dead. Not even Ian can fix this one. Only the manufacturer has the ability to fix it by replacing the engine with a new one. And so you never actually use the car. Never leaves the garage. You don't take it to work or to the shops or to your friends or on a Sunday drive. This is not what the manufacturer had in mind for the car. The car might look like it's in top condition, but you are not using it for its purpose or what it was designed to do. As we've seen through the Gospel of Matthew, we've been talking about the kingdom of God, how Jesus is king, and how Jesus is calling a people to himself. We see that in the Sermon of the Mount is an invitation from Jesus into the good life of his kingdom. And Jesus is going into more detail about what it means to live as a follower of Jesus. He says that the good life is found in him as being his disciple. Repenting and turning from our sin and our old ways of being in the world and towards him, sitting at his feet and learning to reorientate our mind and our hearts and our lives to the kingdom and character of him as the king. 
We saw last week Alon address the question, how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Jesus came to fulfill the law. The law is more, just, more than just the Ten Commandments or the 613 laws given at Mount Sinai. It includes Genesis, the creation story, Exodus, God's great rescue, God's plan to redeem his people and bring them into the kingdom that he had prepared for them. It's the history of God's people. The prophets were God's messengers to the wayward people. Despite all that God had done for them and brought them out of Egypt with a great and mighty hand into the land flowing with milk and honey, a land with vineyards that they didn't plant and cities that they didn't build, despite God's goodness to them, they still rejected God as their king. But God longed for them to return to him. The prophets spoke warnings and of hope, warnings for disobedience and hope of future restoration, a future kingdom, a kingdom of peace established by the king. And now Jesus isn't replacing God's word. Jesus is God's word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of scriptures. The story of Exodus is true history, but it is also a shadow of Jesus rescuing his people from out of a foreign kingdom of darkness and into his new kingdom. The story of Ruth and Boaz points to Jesus' role as our kinsman redeemer. Jonah's encounter with the big fish points to Jesus' death and resurrection on the third day and to proclaim to the nations that they will bring, be brought to him. The whole Old Testament points to Jesus. They reveal what he is like and what he is coming to do. They are a beautiful picture of the beautiful life that he prepared them for and saved them for. Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law, not to get rid of it. He's not overturning it. He's not demolishing it or tearing it down. He doesn't say it doesn't matter and that you can just ignore it. He's come to fulfill it. And that fulfillment means there's both continuity and discontinuity. That means, first of all, when we look at Jesus and we sit at his feet, we learn from him and what he's teaching us What he's teaching us is continuous with the Old Testament. Jesus has come to fulfill it. Jesus is like the psalmist who loves God's law. He knows that it's good and perfect, and it's a reflection of the very character of the Heavenly Father. It's good to live along these lines. He wants us to love God's scriptures too. Jesus hasn't come to get rid of it. He affirms what God has been saying through the law and the prophets. He says it's good stuff. But in fulfilling it, there's a means of discontinuity as well. It's not going to pass away, but it's going to be transformed. Since the one that it's pointing to and looking forward to is here, now. The law was a story of how God was going to rescue his people. But it was like a trailer of the movie. It contains little glimpses, little bits of the puzzle. But Jesus' arrival is like the premiere The movie is out now, and all the pieces suddenly fit together, and you can see the big picture, and it's all pointing to him. The Old Testament was full of shadows, pale imitations, but Jesus is the real thing. 
He is the climax, the high point, the resolution to the story. He is the character of God that the law pointed to. He's made flesh and walking among us. After he arrives, nothing will be the same again. He brings a new era, a new age in world history. See, in the Old Testament, God's people had the picture of the beautiful life that he called them to, but they didn't have the desire or the ability to live it. They had hearts that were hard towards God. But embedded in the story through the Old Testament were promises that God himself would one day do what it takes to change them. He would give them new hearts. He'd forgive their unfaithfulness and he would transform them. He'd give them the resources and the ability to live the beautiful life that the scriptures held out for them. When Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's saying that he is the culmination and completion of God's saving work that began in the Old Testament. And by fulfilling that saving work, he enables us to live the beautiful life that the scriptures lays out. And because he is the fulfillment, he's got the final word. Verse 20 is the summit of this. And this is what Jesus will spend the rest of his sermon unpacking. He says that if you want to be his disciple... If you want to be part of the kingdom and live a flourishing life, a life that is to the full of the promises of Abraham and Israel, that you need true righteousness. Righteousness, the big idea of being righteous, is all about doing God's will, being his disciple, a citizen of the kingdom. It requires you to live and act in a way that lines up with God's character and nature and will. And the really surprising thing of that is that the level of righteousness required is greater than even the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes were professional students and experts in the Jewish law. The Pharisees were a strict sect of Jews who were super strict on obedience and interpretation of the law. We tend to think of them as the bad guys because Jesus came up against them a lot. But in Jesus' day, in his context, they were the good guys. They were the most conservative, most obedient, super holy people. They were the standard that everyone looks up to as the definition of righteousness. They were the regular church attendees who never appeared to do anything wrong. The sort that other religious folk would look up to and aspire to be like. But Jesus says to this group of disciples who are seated around him, fishermen, tax collectors like Matthew himself, rough and ordinary men, to these people, to this group of disciples, he says, you need to be more righteous than the most righteous person that you can think of. That's crazy that they would have to be more righteous than the guys who know all their Bibles, have memorized the whole scriptures, that they pray and fast all the time. They seemingly do everything that the law requires in obeying the 613 rules. They even put extra rules in place to make sure they don't accidentally break one of the real ones. What does it mean to be more righteous than them? Jesus doesn't leave us guessing. He gives us concrete examples and describes for us what true righteousness in the kingdom looks like. And so today we're going to go and complete the second half of chapter 5, verses 21 to 48. Jesus gives us six examples of what true righteousness looks like in everyday life. 
He takes six areas of life, picking up what the law says on murder, adultery, divorce, making promises, retaliation and enemies, and shows us what it looks like to live out the true righteousness that the kingdom demands in these areas. Looking at the passage as a whole, we see a pattern. Each one of these six has the same structure. Jesus says, you have heard it is said, and he quotes something from the law or the Old Testament teaching. And then he says, but I say to you, He explains the true intent of that Old Testament teaching. As God in the flesh, the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus' explanation here has authority. If anyone else spoke like that, it would be blasphemy. You can't go around saying, God says this, but I say that. You would get stoned or crucified. But Jesus is the one who gave the law in the first place. He is the word of God, as we've seen in John. And now he's showing how it's fulfilled in his kingdom. He gives us practical application of the true righteousness, what it looks like down on ground level. And what we'll see is that all six have the same structure, but they also have the same theme, the same focus. Jesus is showing us that true righteousness isn't about external behavior. It's about your heart. These are practical, concrete applications about to put on grace and how grace that Jesus shows us as our saviour takes shape in our lives as we become more like him. The picture that he gives us is a flourishing, full life in Jesus' kingdom where your heart and your hands, your inside and your outside are united and aligned to God. It's important to note here that Jesus isn't diminishing good moral behaviour. It's good not to murder and not to commit adultery. These things are still important. But if the external obedience is all that we're worried about, then we've completely missed the point. Though Jesus uses the Pharisees as an example of the standard of righteousness, they don't actually meet the standard at all. Matthew records later in chapter 23 that the righteousness of the Pharisees was fake. You see that lattice up there? Yeah. Fake. Plastic. Give the place of Victoriana feel. Chimney. Fake too. Why is it there? Charm. Adds a bit of charm. You might laugh at this quote from the castle, but the righteousness of the Pharisees is as good as a fake chimney. The righteousness of the Pharisees looked good from the outside, but to the people they appeared To the people, they appeared as near-perfect holy men. But God looked at the heart. For the Lord sees not as man sees. The man looks on outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. In chapter 23, Jesus calls the heart of the Pharisees tombs, full of death. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes were like. He calls them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but inside they are full of dead bones. Their hearts were full of greed, self-indulgence, and every kind of impurity. That is a false righteousness, not true kingdom righteousness. True righteousness is where our inside disposition and our outside actions match. 
This is a one-way process. You cannot change your heart through outside actions. You need a changed heart to affect outward righteousness. Now take notice of what Jesus is saying. First, he isn't saying that the law doesn't count anymore. It's all about love. No. And neither is he saying, you thought that the Old Testament was strict. You ain't seen nothing yet. You have to work even harder than the Pharisees. No to that too. What Jesus is saying is that this is what the law was always about. If you think it was just about external actions, you haven't understood it. It's always been about your heart. So what does that look like? We're not going to go through all of these in in full detail. Uh, There's going to be some things that we skip over, and and if you want to talk about those, come come and chat to me later. But we're going to have a look at how Jesus takes the Old Testament law and uncovers what he's really concerned with and shows the seriousness of putting it into practice. First up, we're going to look at murder in verse 21 to 26. You may have never murdered anyone, and that's a good thing. But do you harbour resentment and bitterness and hatred towards anyone? Being Jesus' disciple means that we're, we are just as interested in lining up our heart with God's commands as our external actions. And so true righteousness in the kingdom means not just murdering, but seeking reconciliation with the people we have broken relationships with. And do you see that the practical application in verse 23 Jesus said that it's so important that our horizontal relationships affect our vertical relationship with God. We can't worship and serve him while we're in conflict with other people. And so kingdom people seek reconciliation. Are there people that you need to be reconciled with? The true righteousness of the kingdom means letting go of hate and seeking reconciliation. Or adultery from verse 27. Haven't committed adultery? It's great. But is your heart full of lust? Is it pornography? Even the external action of not looking at porn is not what true righteousness is about. It's about your hearts. Do you use your imagination to dream or desire about someone who is not your husband or your wife? The true depth of this righteousness isn't external actions. It's the intentions and desires of your heart. What does Jesus say about it? He says it's as serious as cutting off your right hand or gouging out your right eye. There are a few people through church history who have taken that literally. Oregon of Alexandria in the second century allegedly castrated himself. But Jesus is really speaking in hyperbole here. The issue is our hearts, remember? Not just our hands or our eyes, but he is crystal clear about the seriousness of sin and the lengths that we should go to avoid it. How do you take your, how seriously do you take your sexual purity? Maybe cutting off your right hand is hyperbole, but would you cut off your smartphone? I think most of us would struggle to take that seriously. Would you break up with a boyfriend or a girlfriend if they weren't being serious about being above reproach with you? Would you take action to avoid an inappropriate relationship in the workplace? Jesus says that the true righteousness of the kingdom is as serious as gouging out parts of your own body. 
But even the extreme action of castration can't stop sin in heart from lusting. Accountability software on a computer cannot stop our sinful desires in our heart. We need more than outward action and willpower. We need a new heart. Divorce in 31. Divorce was a merciful concession to Israel in the law. It was not something that God approved of, but was a sad acknowledgement of the brokenness of the world. It was because of hard hearts. It was permissible only in cases of sexual indecency. But the Pharisees had taken it and expanded the definition of indecency to include pretty much anything that could possibly be considered shameful, even to the extent of burning the dinner. What God had, had permitted in order to protect the vulnerable was twisted to fulfill the selfish desires and hard hearts. Jesus says those sorts of hard hearts that, leading, that lead to cutting off your husband or your wife, to closing up to them and pushing them away, that those hearts have no place in the kingdom. True righteousness calls for faithfulness in marriages. In verse 33, it means that we must be careful with our mouths, that we don't say things that we don't mean. We don't make promises that we don't intend to keep and try to wiggle out of them. The Pharisees and the scribes had a whole system that allowed them to get out of keeping their word through adjusting the weight of their oaths. Swearing by the gift of the altar, well, you had to keep your word. But if you only swore on the altar, well, then that didn't mean anything. No, Jesus says that kingdom people have integrity. They reflect the character of their king and their God, who is faithful to his word. What he says, he does. It's satanic, he says, to try and wiggle out of keeping your word based on a technicality. Are you known as someone who keeps your word? In verse 38, he talks about retaliation. If we've been hurt, it's natural for us to want to get back at people. We want them to suffer and to be punished. He quotes a law here saying, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's a famous law known as lex talionis. Lots of cultures have a similar principle in their laws. It's not about making sure everyone gets what they deserve. You hurt me and I'll hurt you back. It's not saying if you take my eye out, I get to take out yours too. Vengeance is what we naturally want, is it? You just have to look at kids. They're a perfect example of what we want to do. Someone hurts us a little bit and we want to respond completely out of proportion. They take our toy and we bash them over the head. The law is designed to avoid that. It's meant to limit excess retribution. It stops people from taking justice into their own hands and assures that the punishment is appropriate for the crime. It is a good law, but Jesus wants us to go beyond that. True righteousness is about leaving justice and retribution to God. But it's even... But it's even more than that, even more than just leaving justice to God. It's living in line with true righteousness means serving. Do you see that? To give your cloak 
to go the extra mile, to give to the one who begs, actively responding to someone's hostility with generosity. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that we just turn a blind eye to evil. He's not saying that we shouldn't call the police when we hear of abuse. He's not saying that wives and children should stay with abusive husbands or husbands with abusive wives. He's not saying that if someone breaks into your house to kill your family that you can't defend them. This is not about self-defence. This is about vengeance. This is about defending your honour. If someone slaps you on the right cheek with their right hand, they're using the back of their hand. This is an insult. This is not pure violence. Paul echoes this in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, beloved. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What Jesus is doing is inviting us into a new way of being in the world, where we don't have to respond to people's offences against us in a way that demands that they be punished. He's inviting us to imitate him. What was Jesus like when they struck him and spat on him and pulled out his beard before they nailed him to the cross? He turned the other cheek and he didn't fight back. When you want to lash out with your tongue or your fists, remember the example of Jesus, whipped, beaten and killed because he was the son of God. He was crucified. What did he do to those when he was reviled and mocked? He didn't return insult for insult. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, who is the judge. Instead of seeking his own justice, Jesus actively sought to love them by dying on the cross for them, to rescue them. As we're transformed by our King and our Saviour, as we put on grace, it takes shape in our lives. This is what it looks like. This is the true righteousness that the kingdom of heaven demands. And finally, the most radical one of all, Jesus says for last, in verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Loving your neighbour isn't enough. Jesus is brutal towards the scribes and the Pharisees here. By only loving their neighbour, they're no better than the tax collectors or the Gentiles. The tax collectors were considered traitors by the Jewish people for working with Rome. And Jesus here puts them in the same category as the people that they despise. True righteousness goes further than just loving our neighbour. It loves our enemies too. Now, if we've heard this before, or maybe many times, we might be a bit numb to how radical this is. But think of what that means. Your enemy isn't limited to foreign nations in a time of war or people with opposing political or philosophical views. Enemies include the people who have hurt you, who have stolen from you, who spread rumours about you, 
It's your bully. Let's take a moment and not just leave that in the abstract. Think of that person. Who is it for you? The people that hurt us the most are often those that used to be closest to us. Those who used to be our friends. Who have abused you and abandoned you in your time of need. Who neglected you to serve themselves. The person you actively avoid. Who is this person? Jesus says, if you want to know what it's like to show true righteousness, even better than that of the Pharisees, to be his disciple and be part of his kingdom, it means loving that person. But why should we do that? Because our enemies are creatures of our God. They are made in the image of God too, just like us. More than that, it's because this is how God is. Jesus says that he makes the sun rise on the good and the evil. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. He loves his people, even though they have rejected him time and time again. God, in his perfect righteousness, cares for and loves the righteous and the unrighteous. So much so that while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. Jesus forgave us. How much more should we forgive them? In the kingdom that Jesus rules, he invites us to be part of it by clothing ourselves in the kind of character that he embodies in his own life and ultimately in his death for us. And that's what it's like. That's what the godness that Jesus uses to summarise the true righteousness in the kingdom is like. Everything that Jesus says about true righteousness is summed up in verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Each of the six examples of true righteousness in the kingdom that Jesus has used are all about the heart, aren't they? External obedience, just keeping his commands, that's good, but it's not what God is most interested in. God sees our hearts and he cares what's going on there. The seed of our action is just important as the fruit. What does God want from us? What does God, what does Jesus want us to look like as citizens of his kingdom? He wants our insides to match our outsides. He wants us to be whole, to have integrity, because that's what God is like. And that's what he means in verse 48. The word perfect here is derived from the word telos, which we know means purpose. This word teleos means mature or complete. Jesus wants his followers, his disciples, to be complete, mature. Our love for others needs to be as full and complete as the Father loves all the people that he has made. If you want to join the kingdom off your own back, then yes, this is the standard. But this isn't an expectation that we need to fulfill on our own. 
if we, if we want to be in the kingdom, can we never make a mistake? Because God never makes mistakes? No. If we fail to live up to this, then are we going to be kicked out of the kingdom? No. That would be terrifying and an anxious way to live. But this isn't complete hyperbole either. This is God's desire for us. Ephesians 4. He gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This maturity in Christ is teleos, complete. God wants us to be mature and complete, to the full measure of the stature of Christ. This is God's desire for us. He has worked in us to build us up to this picture of true righteousness. And this perfection is our ultimate end. We will be perfected in the next life. Yes, this completeness will never be fully obtained this side of eternity. But we should desire to continue to walk the path of our sanctification. To follow Jesus and be more like him every day putting to death the old ways of living, the ways of the past kingdom, and putting on a new way of living in the kingdom of God. Just as the Old Testament contained many shadows and pointers to Jesus, we too live in a time where the kingdom is here, but it is not the ultimate fulfilment. And already, but not yet. And we look forward in hope to when our sanctification will be complete perfected by Jesus Christ as we are restored in the new creation. This sanctification is not a personal enlightenment journey, not a vertical-only response. The kingdom of God isn't one billion little kingdoms of just Jesus and me, but all of God's people united in Jesus. All of the followers of Jesus are one people, called to live out this righteousness together. We are called to do this good work for each other and for the world. A horizontal response, for as James says, faith without works is dead. We are called to love our brothers, to be faithful and loving to our spouse, to speak truth with our words, to not seek our own justice, but to love others, and not just our friends, and our neighbours, but our enemies too. This is what we are called to do as Christians, as followers of Christ Jesus. As Christians, we are more than just sinners with grace. We are called to be transformed. Our ability to accomplish this comes not from ourselves, not from willpower or determination. Human limitations and boundaries cannot produce a good heart. Anger management classes cannot change someone's core. You cannot will yourself to love another person. Software on a computer cannot prevent the heart from lusting. These things can be useful tools, but they cannot affect lasting heart change. But through the Spirit of God that he has placed within us, 
He can change us from the inside. Jesus doesn't want a good enough effort of our own self-righteousness. He wants our hearts and hearts that are transformed by his grace and aligned with his nature and his character. And out of these new hearts flows a new way of being in the world that is the beautiful life that the Old Testament promised. Do you, have, do you feel how radical the call of the kingdom of heaven is? It's such a lofty vision, and we're meant to feel that. In the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus is showing us the life that he calls us to live as grace-shaped people. It's the life that he creates in us by his grace. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in once you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in work of the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up And raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, this is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is an invitation to the life that God has promised and that Jesus has created in us through the gospel. Changed hearts, regenerated, empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the good works that He has prepared for us. The law, And the prophets have been fulfilled by Jesus. The saving work that he began in the Old Testament has come to its culmination and completion because Jesus has arrived. The beautiful story of God's plan to rescue his people all points to him. And he transforms us and gives us the resources that we need to live the gospel-shaped life that the law promises. Let us pray and ask God to help us live it out. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, that your beautiful plan to save your people is realised in him. We ask that as your people who have put our trust in Jesus, that you transform us And change us by the power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Help us live the beautiful life that you've laid out for us in the law and the prophets and that we're waiting to live fully when Jesus comes back. We thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his forgiveness. Forgive us for the times when our lives don't look like this. Please help us to change 
so that Jesus will be glorified in us. For we prayed in his name. Amen.